0: Well good morning. John Varela, you stole my opening illustration. I was gonna talk about the fall. Now. Hey guys, what do you think of this weather lately? <laughs> Boy, it's been raining lately and changing weather, you know. My my roof's been leaking. And I was so glad it did, you know. Uh the weather is crazy though, hasn't it been? I mean, if you, if, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've had like more rain at the start of September than I can ever recall living down here. I haven't been down here that long. I've been in Southern California for maybe 10 years or so, but can anyone recall this much rain in September? No? There are some significant changes going on, and I, I personally like it. I personally like this change. I like the cold weather. My wife and I, she, she, oh, she gets kind of giddy when it gets cold like this. Uh, she starts whipping out the hot chocolate and she pulls out her fall decorations and is decorating all over the house. We've already got our, our, our pumpkins out and our fall leaves out all over the house. It's a new season. A new change. In the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 16, we are going to begin to see a whole new world. A whole New world. Times are absolutely changing in the land of Galilee. A man by the name of Jesus Christ has shown up on the scene. And with him comes a whole new season, a whole new period of change for that regular little town of Capernaum. A simple little town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee a village, one of the more prominent villages on the Sea of Galilee, but nevertheless a small village. And these people are about to watch someone who's going to bring in a great deal of change. Jesus Christ is walking into their village today and He's bringing with Him a whole new season, a whole new outlook on life, and everyone around Him is going to be attracted ...to this new change. The title of my message today is... ...One Day with Jesus. One Day with Jesus. Five Lessons from Capernaum. I couldn't uh, put it any other way... ...because this is a day with Jesus. With the exception of perhaps the first story we see... ...our text today is going to cover a 24-hour period. A 24-hour period in Jesus' earthly ministry. Perhaps the first 24 hours of ministry... In Galilee. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 16. And we're going to go all the way to 38, but we're going to read differently today. We're we're not going to read through the whole text as one. I want to read these in vignettes, in small stories. Small, bite-sized stories. There are five of them. And with each story, I'd like to draw out a lesson that you and I can learn from in each of these stories. And so we're going to read them piece by piece by piece. And in the end, we're going to try and pull them all together and find out what exactly is taking place in this one day with Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 16. Now again... With the exception of this first story, everything that you read here is taking place in a 24-hour period. This story, at the start, perhaps happened just days earlier. Take a look at Mark 1, 16-20. It says this, And as he, that is Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Then immediately they immediately left their nets and followed Him. When He had gone a little farther from there, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who, were, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately, He, Jesus, called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after Him. Follow Me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus' summons to these four fishermen is very apropos in light of their profession. They were fishermen. They were men who would go out into the Sea of Galilee, who would catch fish, and bring it back into the towns, the villages, and sell them that day and make a profit. Fishermen, by and large, were not necessarily the poorest of the poor. Uh, sometimes we get the impression that a fisherman in Galilee was, was, a, was, was undoubtedly a poor person. Not necessarily the case. If you look closely, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they had their own boat. So they at least had some sort of a, of a business rolling, if you will. And in their profession in fishing... Uh, Jesus, this is the profession that Jesus latches onto, and he says, Hey, you're a fisherman? You catch fish? You catch fish for a living? I want you to fish for me. I want you to follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. What were they catching men for? Is the question. What were they catching men for? Why did mankind need catching? You know, we often hear this term, fishers of men, and we think in terms of the positive. We think in terms of, uh, if I'm a fisher of men, I am someone who uh, catches people for the Lord. I I throw out my net, if you will, I evangelize, I reach out and and I bring people into the kingdom of God by evangelizing. What's interesting about fishing in the Old Testament is that every time fishing is mentioned, every time fish are mentioned, by and large, the context is a context of judgment. It is a context of condemnation. You turn to passages like Jeremiah 16, 16. You turn to passages like Ezekiel 29, 4-6. And I have many others where I could point you to. And in all of those passages fishing as a profession was used as a metaphor for judgment, for condemnation, for God saying, I'm going to fish you out as if to say, I'm going to pull you out and cause you to be judged. Now, what did Jesus mean when He said, I'm going to make you become a fisher of men? It seems to me that He meant just the opposite. Instead of, putting the lion in and pulling them unto a state of judgment, what Jesus meant by using this illustration, relying on the Old Testament before Him, was to say, I want you to put in the hooks and, and pull people out of condemnation. And pull people out of the kingdom of darkness. Take a look at what one theologian, Ben Witherington, said about this text. He says, What Jesus seems to be asking these disciples to do is to rescue some in the face of coming eschatological judgment. To fish out a person means to rescue him from the kingdom of darkness. Jesus was telling them, I want you to fish for men because they're in judgment. Because they're in condemnation. And I need you to pull them out of that judgment. Out of that condemnation. And into, and into a new life with me in both the calling of Simon and Andrew, and James and John, it says that immediately they left their nets, they left their father, and they followed Jesus Christ. Their reaction to Jesus' summons was immediate. Now, some, some of us look at this reaction, uh, and we make the assumption, and perhaps rightly so, I'm not quite sure, but we make the assumption that, that this a- action... Of following Jesus was in effect a validation that these four men believed in Christ as they left their nets. Uh, Some of us, we look at this episode and we say that was the time in which these four men became Christians, if you will, began to follow Christ and and believed on Him for the first time. And there are good reasons to believe this. This could be the case. Uh, If you look closely in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 41 you will notice that Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist so certainly they had a fair amount of teaching coming from the one who was the forerunner to Jesus Christ also in, in that same chapter of John John 140 he uh, excuse me John 141 Andrew identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He goes to his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, we found the One who is called the Christ. We found Jesus who is called the Messiah. The One who is to be the Anointed One of Israel. Andrew had at least rightly identified Jesus. and Presumably, he had believed in Jesus. But on the other hand, on the other hand what kind of messiah what kind of messiah did Andrew and the rest think Jesus would be was their view of the messiah similar to that of the vast majority of Jews of that day the vast majority of Jews of that day believed that the messiah the anointed one of Israel would be a political ruler. One who would overthrow Rome. Who would crush the Roman imperial empire and would reestablish Israel as the premier, preeminent nation in all the world. That was what the vast majority of people believed the Messiah would be. And so when Andrew says in John 1.41, we found the Messiah... What did He mean? In truth, we don't know what He meant. We don't know what conception of the Messiah Andrew had at that time. And as a matter of fact, if we look at the Gospels clearly, it seems that that there was a great amount of confusion among the disciples as to who Jesus was. They seemed to express belief in Him, but at the same time, they would have mass confusion over who He was and, 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 and they would say, no, 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 you, you're not going to go and die. What are you talking about? We don't know. We don't know when these disciples came to a saving faith in Christ. It very well could have been when they left their nets. Equally so, it very well could have been much later on in their lives. What's the point of all this speculation? What is my point in saying all of this? It is this. It is just as plausible to make the argument that Jesus called these four fishermen to follow Him and become His disciples before they believed in Him, as it is to assume that they were believers from the time they left their nets to follow Christ. In fact, as we will see in this Gospel of Mark, as we read through this carefully, what we will notice is that the disciples show tremendous confusion over who Jesus is and what His mission is all about. But Jesus is patient with them. He's patient with them. All that Jesus asks is that they follow Him. That they learn from Him. That they walk where He walks. That they see what He sees. May I suggest that this is a tremendous method of evangelism. May I suggest that Jesus' method here In calling people to follow him, before they had rightly understood everything there was to know about him, before they had completely and utterly repented of their past ways, before they had all of their ducks in a row, if you will, Jesus said, Hey, follow me, learn from me, watch me, listen to me, see what I see. A tremendous method of evangelism. You know, in VBS and Awana, I don't know if you know this, um, in VBS and Awana Ministries, our church permits non-Christians to serve. We do. We purposefully allow non-Christian parents in particular to come and to serve, not in teaching capacities, in listening capacities, in helping capacities only. And we allow unbelieving parents to listen to Awana kids as they say their Bible verses, and we allow unbelieving parents to come and to help in VBS ministry to maybe help with craft time or help with whatever uh, volunteer needs are out there. You know why we do this? Because we're convinced that people need to see Christianity in action. People need to see what happens when they walk into this place And they see the Kingdom of God being accomplished here and now at Coast Bible Church. I welcome unbelieving parents to serve in our church's children's ministries in capacities which is not going to be teaching or leading ministries, but in helping ministries, in listening ministries, in places where they can sit and watch and look and see what is happening here. I would argue it's perhaps the most effective way that we can reach these unbelieving parents. Now, to be clear, we we make sure we go through a lot of other checks. We have background checks. We make sure we know these people. But but really, in the end, the point is this, friends. Jesus' method was, hey, follow me. Follow me. Watch me. Listen from me. In the end, we can learn from this method of evangelism. Life lesson number one, friends, is this. Jesus' method of converting people was a come-and-see kind of process. He included folks in His mission before they themselves had all their ducks in a row. He included people in His mission before they themselves had all their ducks in a row. And might I add, none of us have all of our ducks in a row except perhaps Tom Bennett. I'm just I'm making fun of Tom because he always makes fun of me during the service. You know, I see him back there waving. None of us have our ducks in a row. None of us do. My goodness. If we said, no, 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 you've got to make sure you repent of all your sin before you serve in ministry. Make sure you know all there is to know about the Bible before you serve in ministry. Are, are you kidding me? None of us would be qualified. No. Bring people in the doors. Say, come, see, watch, listen, learn. That, perhaps, is the best method of conversion. That's life lesson one. Let's go into the second story. Second story, verse 21. Take a look at this story. Now, Jesus has called his disciples and now he begins day one in Capernaum. Verse 21 to 28. Then they, that is Jesus and the four disciples, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Verses 21 to 22, they enter Capernaum. He enters the synagogue and he begins to teach. This statement is so much more significant than we could ever realize. The synagogue rulers and scribes oversaw the teaching ministry of their synagogues. This wasn't an open mic night. This wasn't, Hey, come on up. Tell me what you got. Open up the, uh, the Torah and just start talking. No. It was very much like what we have today in church. You know, I, we don't just let anybody come and preach at Coast Bible Church. No, what we do is we, we make sure they're trained. Make sure they're qualified. Make sure they align with us theologically, etc. And then we give them an opportunity to speak. You know, I had a, 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 an acquaintance of mine, a friend of the family, who uh, is an atheist. And uh, he was talking to me one day about my, my job with Coast and my, as a pastor. And, and he was so curious about it. He says, well, you know, what's it like on a Sunday? And I said, well, you know, this is how it's like. And, and I preach and I teach and this is how we do it. And, and he's a very uh, learned man. Uh, he knows a lot about religion. He knows a lot about the history of religion. He knows a little bit about the Bible. And he asked me, he said, well, will you give me an opportunity to speak one day? I kid you not. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, I would, lo- I would love to come. And I would love to share what, I, what I've learned uh, with your church. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what to say. I was with my father-in-law. We both looked at him and we were just like, you know, we'll get back to you on that one. It was not an open mic night, friends. It was not an open mic night at the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus walked in sat down, and the rulers and the scribes looked upon this man, and much like the disciples, when they looked upon him, he said, hey, follow me, and they said, okay. They looked upon this man and they said, how about you, Teach? There must have been something about Jesus that caused people to say, this man must have authority. This man must know something. There is something about this man that is unique, that is distinct, that I have never seen before. Do you have something to say? Do you have something to say, Jesus? And they invite Him to speak. Verse 23, And they were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes received their authority from a lifetime of learning and study. Jesus, on the other hand, possessed a different kind of authority. A derived authority. An authority only available to God. We don't know the content of Jesus' teaching that day. It doesn't say what He taught. What we do know is that the way in which He taught astonished the people. The manner in which He taught caused them to drop their jaw. Now let's go to the next section. Verses 23-26. to It says this, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. When the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Suddenly, as Jesus is teaching, a demon possessed man, either in or just entering into the sanctuary, the synagogue, this man begins to interrupt Jesus' teaching. It says he cried out, which is another word for shouted. He shouted, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are—the Holy One of God. The demon uh, identifies Jesus here. He identifies Jesus. Why does he do so? Um, if you if you are a historian, a historian of the first century, you will know that there are accounts of exorcisms. That is to say, there are written accounts of demons being exorcised from a person. And in these accounts, these are non-biblical accounts, these are not from the Word of God, but nevertheless, in these accounts, it was common practice of the person exorcising a demon. It was common practice for that person to name the demon. To call him by his name in order to gain control and power over the situation. Jesus did that. Mark chapter 5. Jesus asked a demon. He said, what's your name? The demon said, my name is Legion. Jesus, at that period of time in Mark 5, He was following a common practice, if you will, of that day of identifying the demon such that He could... Gain power and control over the situation. This was common practice in in exorcisms. What the demon is doing in verses 24, in verse 24, is he is reversing that process. This demon is naming Jesus, is identifying who Jesus is, so that he can perhaps gain a footing, gain ground, gain control, gain power of the situation. It is an attempt by the demon to gain control over Jesus by naming Him. You are Jesus of Nazareth. You are the Holy One of God. Make no mistake, friends, the demon is declaring... Make no mistake, the demon is declaring that Jesus, as the Holy One of God, is the Messiah, is the Savior of Israel, is the One who is to come into the world. The demon knows this to be true. But such a statement, such a conviction that this demon has is not efficacious to save him because he's a demon. Demons can't be regenerate regardless of what they believe to be true, regardless of what they say, regardless of their conviction. I bring this up precisely because I hear time and time and time again, I hear people say, they quote James 2.19, and they say, well, see, even the demons believe. So obviously, belief in Christ is not all there is to be saved. Perhaps you've made that statement before. I know earlier on in my life, I made that statement before. Perhaps you know of people who have made that statement before. People who say, well, even the demons believe, so obviously belief is not sufficient to gain everlasting life. I want to say very clearly, that is a very foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. And the reason that is a foolish statement is because, first of all, James 2.19 says, has nothing to do with demons believing in Christ. It indicates that the demons believe God is one. God is one. The Shema. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The demons believe that, if you will. But moreover, even if it could be demonstrated in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, and in other places where the demons rightly identify, rightly state who Jesus is, even if it could be demonstrated... That this is in fact equivalent with believing in Christ, which it might be or it might not. I'm not here to argue that point. My point is this no matter what a demon believes, no matter what is a demon's conviction, he is a demon, and therefore he cannot be regenerate. I'll say that again. No matter what a demon believes, no matter what a demon states or is convicted about or declares to be true, it does not matter. Because he's a demon. And therefore, he cannot be regenerate. It is insufficient to say that, well, even the demons believe, and therefore, believing in Christ is not enough. That is an insufficient statement, friends. We're on two totally different playing fields here. So, I, I say very clearly, don't fall into the trap of assuming that, that belief in Christ is not enough because the demons believe. The demons are not men. They are spiritual beings. Wicked spiritual beings. Perpetually wicked. In another realm, if you will. And the rules do not apply to them as they do to us with respect to saving, with respect to regeneration, with respect to justification. We know and can be sure, based on John 3.16, John 6.47, so many others, that believing in Christ is all that is needed to be saved. Moving on to Jesus' response. He says, Be quiet and come out of Him. Why did Jesus silence the demons? I pose this question to you. Why did Jesus silence the demons? One, Jesus did not allow demons to gain control of their encounters with Him by identifying who Jesus was. We just spoke about this. Jesus did not want that demon, if you will, to gain a foothold, to gain a strong point in in the dialogue in the episode there. Two, Jesus did not intend for people to learn the truth of his identity from a demon. It was not Jesus' intention to have demons declare the truth of who Jesus was to people. Obviously, that was not something that Jesus desired, and so he said, "Be quiet, be quiet." We're going to come to a third reason, but we're going to wait on that for just a moment. So hold off on that third reason. But notice what happens. He says, be quiet, come out of him. And what happens? The unclean spirit convulsed and cried out and came out. Jesus exercised the demon. Verses 27 and 28. Then they were all amazed so that they question among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And immediately His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Life lesson number two. Jesus has power over the spirit world. Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. That means that the power of Christ in you is able to overcome any spiritual attack. I say clearly, the power of Christ in you is able to overcome any spiritual attack. There is no Christian who at one point in his or her life puts faith in Christ who will be utterly unable to overcome the deception of the adversary and his demons. There is no Christian who cannot overcome the deception of demons. So, have confidence. Know clearly that when the Spirit of Christ is in you upon faith in Jesus Christ, when you have that power of Christ in you, you at that point in time forever are able to overcome any spiritual attack. Period. Let's go to the third vignette. The third story. Verse 29. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she served them. same day, After leaving the synagogue, Jesus and the disciples go to Simon's house. This is Simon Peter. And they find Simon's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever. This was most likely a little bit more of a grave condition than the Bible might indicate. Um, It probably was not just a, a mere simple fever. This was probably a... A very serious fever that this woman was overtaken by. And having just witnessed Jesus' ability to exercise a demon, the disciples think to themselves, let's see what happens here. Remember, friends, these disciples know very little to nothing about Jesus at this point in time. Think in terms of their viewpoint. They just saw Jesus exercise a demon. And they're walking into the house. They're walking up. They see the mother-in-law lying in bed sick. And they're thinking, maybe Jesus can heal her too. Boy, who is this Jesus? And so they ask Him, could you go over here and tend to this woman? Now, up until this point, I purposely left something out of these stories. Take note of the day upon which this story is taking place. Go back to verse 21. What day is it? It's the Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath day. Jesus exercised a demon on the Sabbath day. According to the Jewish law, that was a major offense. A major transgression. Jesus, at that point in time, once He exercised that demon in the synagogue on the Sabbath, Jesus was disobeying their understanding of the law. And I say clearly, their understanding of the law. Healed, exorcised a demon, disobeyed the law. Simon's mother-in-law, he's about to walk up to her and he's about to heal her. Once again, disobeying the law as the Jews understood it be. What is more, when Jesus heals this woman, it says this, it says, verse 31, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. When Jesus heals this woman, what is more, is that this woman goes on to serve Jesus and those who are with Him. It says, and she served them. Without question, this simple statement would not have gone unnoticed by those within Simon's house, by those reading the Gospel of Mark. The word used for serve is diakoneo, and is most often understood in terms of preparation and the serving of food. Not only was Jesus disrupting the common Jewish understanding of keeping the Sabbath, but so also those that followed Him, Simon's mother-in-law, and those who were touched by Him in His ministry, these people also began to reinterpret commonly held Jewish religious practices in light of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Life lesson number three. It is better to do good than to conform to the traditions of men. It is better to do good than to conform to the traditions of men. You know, I'm reminded of the Good Samaritan. We, we hear the story often. But again, a man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And two people pass him. A Levite and a priest. Undoubtedly, this Levite and this priest were either coming from Jerusalem, having just worshipped in the temple, or they were going to Jerusalem, we don't know which, going to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, rather than pause... From their tradition of worship and helping the man in the ditch, they pass on by and they squander the opportunity to do good rather than to keep to their tradition. We have traditions today, make no mistake. Um, Those of us who uh, pass, you know, I think of passing someone, a a woman on the side of the freeway with a a flat tire. Well, i got to get to church on time. Prime example. Uh, We could name many others. Friends, I would rather you be late. 30 minutes late, no less. I'd rather you miss my sermon than to pass someone who was in need on your way to church. We're not going to have anybody here next week, and that's okay. I would rather you do that. I would rather you do good than keep coming here every day at 10 a.m. just to show up. That's what Jesus is saying. Better to do good than to keep to the traditions of men. Now, news about Jesus, friends, was getting around quite quickly by now. The people at Capernaum were thrilled, thrilled to learn that a miracle worker had entered their town. Yet still, they were reticent, they were slow to associate with this miracle worker. After all, he was dishonoring the Sabbath. He was dishonoring their long-standing traditions. Now, the crowds desired the physical benefits that Jesus brought, the healings, the exorcisms. They desired His physical blessing, but they were slow to embrace His opposition to commonly held Sabbath practices of that day. This leads us to our fourth story. Verse 32. At evening... When the sun had set, they brought to Him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. The whole city was gathered together at the door. Then He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew Him. Take note of the first clause. At evening when the sun had set. What day is it now? It's not the Sabbath. When the sun had set, the Sabbath day was over. Upon close inspection, Mark is simply declaring here that the people of Capernaum were afraid, afraid, to break ties with the interpretation of the Old Testament law as they were associating with Jesus. They did not bring the sick and the demon-possessed until after The sunset. Until after the Sabbath day was over. Oh, they desired healing. They desired to see demons leave their loved ones. But greater still was their desire to be obedient to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Jewish religious leaders of that day. How often do we fear social or cultural rejection? How often do those things keep us from becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It is not what our friends think. It is not what our society tells us. We are to be people who speak, think, and act like Jesus Christ in any given situation. We are not to shrink back when society tells us we're a little bit weird, or a little bit odd, or a little bit phony. Now, Jesus' fame here is spreading quickly. It says the whole city was gathered together at the door, bringing to Him all who were sick and the demon-possessed. Now, we can identify with sick people, right? Illness, regular part of life. Uh, I've gotten sick many times. You've gotten sick many times. We understand what sickness is all about. But notice Mark says that all the townspeople are bringing to Jesus all those who are demon-possessed. Now, for me, this begs the question, how many people were demon-possessed in the first century? My goodness. If, if this is a, I mean, this would not be a statement if Jesus came here today. If, if Jesus were to come here today and we were to write an account of what Jesus did, we would probably say that Jesus, you know, he, he, he healed those who were sick. Um, we don't really have a context for understanding that he came and he exercised demons. Because here in the West, um, we, don't, uh, we don't have a, a view if you will, of how powerful the spirit world is. Um, I think we, we often suppress it. And perhaps other things uh, creep in. Uh, material blessing creeps in. Money. Money, money, money. And, 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 and some might argue that that, that is a, a, a form of possession, if you will, those that are, are beheld to money. But nevertheless, we don't fully realize what it would have been like to have many, many people in your community demon-possessed. Demon-possessed. Yet, first century Galilee was a place in which demon possession was rampant. I would argue that it is still rampant today, even in the West, but more so in places like Africa, in the Middle East, parts of Asia you read about Christians in those regions, you will read about demon possession. You will see what it might have been like for first century Galileans. And It says this, once again, verse 34, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Back to our question. I said, why did Jesus silence the demons? One, we said Jesus did not allow demons to gain control of their encounters with him by identifying who Jesus was. Two, Jesus did not intend for people to learn the truth of His identity from a demon. And third, and perhaps most importantly, Three, Jesus did not want the demons to identify Him as Messiah, knowing the Jews of that day did not have did not have an accurate understanding of the purpose of Messiah's coming. Jesus first wished to reestablish the true meaning of Messiah by His life and His teaching. Uh, I, I, I would argue that this is the primary reason why Jesus tells people, be quiet. He tells demons to be quiet early on in His ministry. And He also tells people to not tell others who He is. You say, well, why would Jesus do that? Why would He heal somebody and then say, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell them who did this. I would argue that is the reason. Because if they went around saying He's the Messiah everyone around Jesus would have said put a crown on Him. Let's go to war with Rome. Let's do battle. And Jesus says that's not why I've come. And so I don't want to be identified as Messiah quite yet. I want to reinterpret what it means. I want to give the the genuine meaning of what it means to be the Messiah of Israel. And that is first and foremost to be the one who brings forth spiritual, eternal refreshment. Resurrection life. Lesson number four. Jesus is concerned that people have a correct understanding of who He is. Such a task requires diligent, prayerful study of the Bible. As you read the Word, ask the Holy Spirit to show you how your conception of Jesus may be deficient. Might I add that this is my favorite area of study? It's, uh, some scholars call it the historical Jesus study, if you will. This is my favorite area of study. is studying who Jesus really was. Because I've got a lot of conceptions in my mind about who Jesus was. And a lot of those conceptions are unbiblical conceptions. And I imagine each of you have conceptions about Jesus that just aren't there. They just aren't listed biblically. They just aren't listed historically. Friends, conceive of Jesus only as you see Him in the Word of God. Read it plainly. Ask the Spirit to guide you and show you how your conception of who Jesus is might be deficient. Because chances are, it is in some ways. I know mine still is. Every day, I open the Word, I learn something new about Jesus Christ. I do. Because I'm looking for it. Look for it. Fifth and finally. Here we go. Last story. Verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus went out and he prayed. Crowds, fame around him. Early on in the morning he got away. Before the sun came up he went off to a solitary place and he prayed. This is one of the three prayer episodes in the Gospel of Mark. We don't know what he prayed. Doesn't say what he prayed. But I would argue that the remaining verses give us a clue as to what Jesus was praying about. Notice what Simon says. He says, everybody's looking for you. What are you doing out here praying? The whole town is stoked. You've been exercising demons. You've been healing the sick. Let's go back. Let's perform more wonders. Yet what the crowd is looking for, Jesus is not willing to provide. The crowds were seeking Him. More miracles. More healing. More exorcisms. Show us more. I would argue that undoubtedly at least some part of Jesus' prayer time with the Father must have included A time of asking the Father what to do with the crowds at Capernaum. What do I do with these people? They're coming to me in droves. Yet they're coming for merely physical healing. They're not aware that I'm bringing with me something far greater. Something that transcends the temporal and the physical. Jesus knew full well that despite His temporal, physical healings, all of the people whom He healed physically would one day die. One day they would physically die. And Jesus was reasonably fearful that the great attraction of His temporal healing power would at the same time detract from His ultimate purpose to give resurrection life to all who believe in Him. To give new life, new kingdom life, to those who would believe in Him. And so when Simon says, everyone is looking for you, Jesus says, let's go. Let's go. Why? That I may preach there also. Let's go to those next towns that I may preach, proclaim, declare a message Because for this purpose, I have come. It is not my intention to merely heal temporal sicknesses and diseases. The reason I've come is to bring the message of eternal healing. The reason I've come is to speak the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. The reason I've come is to preach the message of resurrection that is found by believing in me. R.T. France theologian says this, What is sought by the people is the continuation of the healing, teaching, healing, and exorcism which have marked Jesus' powerful impact on the life of Capernaum. The disciples assume and the people are demanding that things should continue as they have so impressively begun. But Jesus has other priorities. His primary mission is not to be a wonder worker, but to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's well said. Preaching the message of resurrection, kingdom life, comes first. It is the message that counts. The healings, exorcisms, social helps, feeding the poor, clothing the sick. All of these things are of tremendous importance in Jesus' ministry and in ours. But each one of these takes a back seat when it comes to proclaiming the message of the Kingdom of God. Jesus said, My purpose is to preach this message. Lesson 5. The first priority of Jesus' ministry was preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. Healings, exorcism, etc. were part of His ministry. But such signs were never an end in and of themselves. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that miracles and signs were performed to lead people toward faith in Christ. That was their purpose. Preaching the message of Christ should always have a place in any ministry endeavor. Do not lose sight of that. Briefly in review, lesson one. Jesus' method of converting people was a come-and-see method. He included folks in His mission before they themselves had all their ducks in a row. Lesson two, Jesus has power over the spirit world. Christian, you too, you who have believed in Christ for everlasting life, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. The power of Christ is able to overcome any spiritual attack. Any. Any. Marianne's good friend, good student friend, has been overcome in a cult. And yet, she tells me that this young man believed in Christ... She's quite confident that he believed in Christ at a young age. I declare to you that this man cannot be utterly overcome by the deception of demons. He cannot be. The Spirit of Christ within him, we we should pray, will and can and is able to bring him up out of this deception. And to cause him to return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lesson 3. It is better to do good than to conform to the traditions of men. Lesson four: Jesus is deeply concerned that people have a correct understanding of who he is. Such a task requires diligent, prayerful study of the Bible. As you read the Word, ask the Spirit to show you how your conception may be deficient. And five: the first priority of Jesus was preaching the message of the kingdom of God. Healings and exorcisms; these things are part of his ministry, but they were never an end in and of themselves. Miracles and signs are performed to lead people to faith. Preaching the message should always have a place in any ministry endeavor. What do we make sense of all this, friends? I just want to leave you with this. Jesus is getting popular. He's getting famous in Galilee. He's walking and talking and preaching and healing. And the crowds are going, Wow! Look at this miracle worker. And yet, Jesus is quieting demons. Jesus is leaving Capernaum. Why? Because their conceptions about Him are misguided. They're missing it. Jesus does not want His healing ministry to detract from the message that He brings. He does not want the demon's declaration of Him as Messiah to detract from what the true Messiah of Israel is to be. As we continue in Mark next week, Keep this in mind. This is going to be a great study for all of us. I I hope that this has been beneficial for you today. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, I I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the life lessons from which uh, we can learn from as we study Your Word. Father, these uh, vignettes, these little stories in the life of Jesus and Mark are helpful. I pray, Lord, that that these lessons can be applied to our lives, and that we as a people, as a church, would not misrepresent you, would not misconceive of who you are. Father, you desire, your Son is, is interested in being accurately known. I pray, Lord, that we would accurately know your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have everlasting life by believing in him. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.